welcome to this week's show of Who Cares What's the Point, the podcast about the mind for people who think. Now, you may have played hide-and-seek. You may have played hide-and-seek with a three- or four-year-old. Have you ever encountered that time when the three- or four-year-old covers their eyes in plain sight and insists that you can't see them, even though you clearly can? What's going on in the mind of that three to four-year-old such that that happens? Well, that's what Henrika Moll at the Department of Psychology of the University of Southern California is interested in. And she's interested in exploring whether there's a, an underpinning expectation of mutuality and reciprocity that underpins that experience. Listen to me as I talk with Henrika and... Make up your own mind. I've been studying perspective taking in young children for a number of years. So this is uh, the ability that we have to sort of put ourselves in the mental shoes of others and understand what a situation or an event, a scene looks like, feels like, or is how it is conceived by another person who has a different viewpoint than I myself have. And in this research, I have um, learned that unlike what Jean Piaget, who's often called the founding father of child development or of the study of child development, that unlike what he thought about children, namely that they are egocentric and cannot transcend their own viewpoint, they cannot imagine what others see or feel, that instead these young children have a very early developing natural ability to understand when other people might feel or see something different than they themselves do. So that has been sort of the background. And there's something that we, I think, have all witnessed before when we, by way of interacting with young children, you might notice that when you play hide and seek with them, in the first years of them playing this game, they're just terrible at it. They're really terrible at hiding in particular. They hide by simply placing their hands over their eyes or putting a blanket over their head or any th something like that. So they do things that leave their bodies completely exposed, but just sort of cover up the facial area, sometimes only the eyes. And that has fascinated me. It has fascinated me because people saw in this behavior um, a proof of what Piaget was saying, namely that these kids are egocentric. They do this, they show this ridiculous behavior, supposedly because they conflate self and other, they confuse themselves with the other person, and they think that, well, if I cannot see, the other people cannot see me, including me, either. And I always felt that there was something wrong with that explanation. And I have to say, that's what really resonated with me when I, I saw a report about your paper. I was sat there thinking, yeah, that's exactly what um, children do. That's what exactly what my uh, little girl does as well when she was that young. Now, now Piaget thought that this kind of egocentricity um, persisted until children were about five years old. But you, you're, um, the, the experiment that we're going to talk about today, you were looking at children who are three and four years old. That's right. Yeah. Uh, he actually even thought that children remained uh, egocentric for a little while longer, um, up until elementary school age, roughly speaking. So really at around age, only at around age seven, according to him, 
Can they decenter from their own viewpoint and coordinate different perspectives and understand that their own view is just one of many different possible ways of looking at the world? But again, we found in three and four year olds that they do something very interpretation of egocentrism. And so imagine the following situation. You don't ask the child to hide from another, so they're not going to cover their own eyes. But what you do instead is you simply cover your own eyes. And now you ask, you walk up to a three-year-old or four-year-old and you ask her, hey, right now, can you see me? And that's, that's simply what we did. And interestingly, what we found was that these kids at this young age would outright deny that they can see you under those conditions. So egocentrism, egocentrism obviously cannot really explain this uh, interesting negation, this denial of the other's visibility, because they can perfectly see the other and they just have to report that they do. They don't need to put themselves in another person's shoe because they're not asked to hide from, from another. But the fact that these kids nonetheless deny that the other person is visible to them calls for a different interpretation. Sure. Sure. So, so let's take this back a second, um, just because you did a couple of things here to rule out a few alternate explanations. And you also look not just at um, gaze and seeing, but you also um, looked at hearing and um, speaking as well. So maybe yeah. we can um, just talk a little bit about how you um, set, set up this experiment, what you were designing to test first, and then how you ruled out a few other explanations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. So uh, as you said, we started out with the case of seeing because that's the one that people are usually most interested in. Vision has a kind of a privileged um, status among the different senses. It's very, very important. ...world with another. But um, nonetheless, we were interested in the question whether kids would also show these interesting and simply deny that the other is um, not just visible, but also audible or addressable by speech. So we cast a wider net and also asked kids with when we had our mouth not just shut, but sort of covered up with a hand or with a cloth, whether the child could speak to us. And when we covered up our ears, either with hands or again with um, actually earmuffs, we asked the child if they can now um, hear us. And just like for the case of seeing, uh, we found the same pattern. These young children would deny that they can speak to you when your mouth is covered or obstructed and that they can hear you when your ears are um, covered or obstructed. So we found the same interesting uh, and actually false uh, negative uh, answers to these uh, pretty straightforward questions. Okay. So then what, in the second experiment, what were the sorts of explanations that you were trying to rule out here? How could you um, explain your results um, in, in different ways? Right. So, so let me maybe first of all put forth um, our interpretation, mm. what we think this shows, and then we can talk about some um, – potential uh, alternatives. So we think that this shows that the child insists on mutuality. The young child wants to be mutually engaged with the other. She demands 
and insists on reciprocal engagement. I cannot see you unless we both see each other. I cannot hear you unless we both can hear each other. And I cannot speak to you unless you have the same capacity and can speak to me too. So we think that this shows that the child has a very interesting conception of what it means even down to the more sort of basic level of even perceiving the other. Sorry, so, sorry, Enrique, we just missed that yeah. a little bit. It just dropped out. You think, what does this mean for the child? Can you just go over that again? Of course. So we think that the child demands reciprocity when engaging with another person. And this plays out even on the level of perception. They won't even acknowledge that you are visible or audible to them unless the communication can flow both ways. And whether this is verbal communication, as we have in um, hearing the other and being able to speak or verbally address the other, or in nonverbal communication. Namely, I cannot even see you if you do not see me at the same time, which means that unless we make eye contact, an individual perception of another person is not possible. I cannot see you unless we make eye contact. So that's, that is our interpretation, that, that children have a mutualistic understanding of these um, uh, perceptual states and um, so on. Yes. Sure. Okay. So then this mutuality seems quite fundamental and we'll come back to what this might mean in a second. But what what are the other alternate explanations for this that you had to explore in order to arrive at your possible conclusion? Right. So there's a couple of um, other possibilities that we might explore. The first one that springs to mind, and I think it's, it's a viable one that we really need to address, is maybe children simply confuse um, the object and the subject in the question, can you see me? Maybe they think they're being asked, can the other person see me? Right. Yeah. So maybe they kind of reverse the roles here of the perceiver and the perceived because it is the other person whose vision or hearing is very uh, impaired. And so maybe this question gets at the other's capacity to see or to hear under those uh, salient uh, sort of conditions or circumstances, right? That makes a lot of sense. It does. So maybe they it does. I'm sure. Yes. So maybe they simply misunderstand the question. However, that is, um, that is not ran a couple of uh, follow-up experiments showing that they know who the subject and the object is. For example, right now where we came up with a directionality test where we showed young children cartoon characters in, in scenes with always two cartoon characters. And in those scenes, one cartoon character might poke the other and the other doesn't poke back at him, but maybe just sticks out his finger elsewhere, or um, one agent waves at the other, but the other waves away um, to a plane in the sky, say something like that. And we assess whether the children understand these roles. So we would ask, who is uh, waving at whom? Or is this person waving at that person? And they have to sort of make the right choices and give the right answers, which they do. So they know very well what it means to be the agent uh, and the patient um, of of these acts, they understand that. 
I'm sure that sounds very familiar to a lot of listeners who are sat there thinking, I've gone through this with children before and they give me an answer and I sit there and I go, do you understand the question? So they're flicking around going, no, can you see me? No, no, no. Can I see you now? And then they're constantly mucking around with this. <laughs> Everyone right. ends up very confused at the end of that. Yeah, yeah, it is a little bit confusing. But uh, anyway, what we found is that children really do not confuse the roles of perceiver and perceived. They do not misunderstand the question. So that that cannot explain the results. Um, Another alternative explanation might be that maybe they just want to have sort of access to the other's open eyes. Maybe the other's eyes are something like the windows to the soul or whatever. And unless I can kind of look in there or see inside these eyes, then that person is uh, remains opaque to me, <laughs> something like that. But that can't really be true either, because even if the other has the eyes open, but simply looks away and looks past the child and does not make eye contact, children will still say that they cannot see the other. And, and that is interesting, isn't it? Because we do have quite a privileged view about gaze. And we do have quite romantic notions about how important it is that we do look at each other. And there is evidence to show that gaze um, does have a specific um, nurturing impact upon children. But in this case, yes. it doesn't seem to be that important. Well, actually, I think it is all about gaze, but uh, mutual regard. Uh, so gaze uh, with us in interlocking it's not just about the visibility of the other person's eyes right so um the real case so to speak the paradigmatic case and that's the one that children will insist on is um eye contact Mm. or mutual gaze and that that is what they want and the other's eyes might in fact be and open but unless the other looks back at me while i'm looking at him um vision fails Hmm? so it comes back to this core concept of this mutuality this reciprocity this um mutual exchange of of gaze and 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 looking into each other's eyes here Mm -hmm. yes definitely so um what do you make of your results here then um what is this what does this open up for you um why should we care about these results How, how does it take us forward yeah, that's a very good and deep question, and um, I hope I can develop an answer to it um, that uh, leads uh, leads in the right direction. Uh, so I think this, first of all, um, manifests or proves to us how extraordinarily social these, these young creatures are, and they are that really from the very beginning of their lives. Uh, humans are the most relational species. As an individual, the baby uh, cannot accomplish um, anything. It is entirely helpless and entirely dependent on the other. And the first signs um, that she gives, the first sort of behavioral signals that she gives are actually all signals that are meant for and directed at another person. So to give you an example, the human cry is essentially a cry uh, for the other's attention, for the help provided by the other. No other animal species cries like humans do. Then gaze, we were talking about the importance of the eyes. I mean, 
kids really want to make eye contact from the begin very beginning of their lives. And humans' eyes are, are adapted to be uh, picked out by another pair of eyes. We have this whiteness of the sclera, the, the whiteness in the eyes that makes uh, the pupil really kind of stand out with a lot of uh, contrast uh, compared to the surrounding um, facial features. And kids really need the other and want to relate to other human beings from the very beginning. And just how important it is for them to be reciprocally engaged rather than, say, just observe another person or track another person's actions or anything like that is shown by our experiments. All these other ways that I just mentioned of engaging with another by sort of dispassionately observing what they do and sort of from uh, the distance or from afar just sort of um, – looking what they're doing and trying to understand human action that way, that's not how they start out. Um, They start out learning about the world by directly participating in the things that you do and they want to be included and involved. And the way they they, uh, make sure that they achieve that is by way of um, attending you and demanding that you do the same with them. As you're talking, uh, Ulrich, I'm just um, thinking about um, early childhood education uh, and what the implications might be for um, perhaps educators who are working uh, in these environments with um, lots of small children around about that age. Um, What are the sorts of things that perhaps um, they might do differently or um, where practices might change as a result of thinking about what your results might mean? Yeah, those are really good questions. And now you're uh, getting at the more applied aspects of um, this work that I do. And um, even though my my work is really basic cognitive uh, research, um, I, I am aware that these um, questions must arise and are important to, to consider. I can only kind of speculate, but... Um, What this means for early education is that it must take an approach in which children are included as participants. Um, I do not think it makes sense from very early on to kind of try to stand over against them, as it were, uh, as a a teacher who just uh, tries to transmit knowledge and um, impart information unilaterally uh, in the child. That's not how they understand the teacher-learner relationship to be. Uh, They start out again um, expecting mutuality and a form of reciprocal engagement. And uh, so this is actually one of the questions that I will be tackling in uh, a project that I'm about to start on children's conception on the process of um, teaching. Uh, We have studied children as um, the beneficiaries of of this interesting knowledge transmission between teacher and learner. We have investigated under what conditions teaching goes well and maybe what it is that we should be teaching them. Those are questions that have been asked and studied in the past, but nobody has really studied the question how children themselves understand what teaching is or think what teaching is. So that's actually one of the questions that I will um, tackle in, in one of my upcoming projects. The, the other thing that I just was thinking about there was um, in your experiments and, and in what we've been talking about so far is the relational aspect between a child and an adult. Um, 
I'm just wondering what that might look like or what your thoughts were or if there's any evidence around what what this might mean for children relating to other children, um, their siblings or other children in an early child um, educational environment, say, for example. Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, I think that the first individuals to whom children turn uh, in this in this kind of manner of requesting attention uh, those are mainly adults right because they are they tend to be the caregivers and and other adults and um people have shown for example that when it comes to play with other peers um really young children like infants have a kind of a hard time coordinating their their playful activities with that of another child so what you'll be more likely to see is something like a parallel play uh, of two uh, individual children who are each um, uh, engaged in solitary play in the presence of another. And things don't really seem to get off the ground all that fast when it comes to uh, cooperating with other peers, whereas we see a lot of this cooperation happening much earlier when the partner is an adult who already knows what he's doing and kind of has a sense of where the game uh, should should go and so on. So uh, this is a very in- interesting question that you raise. On the one hand, I'm inclined to say it doesn't matter who stands uh, vis-a-vis you, uh, who you are looking at. These children will make the same demands of, of reciprocity. So I think uh, as long as it's a human, uh, it really shouldn't matter. We've actually found the same responses even um um, with respect to dolls, so if you have a, a doll or, or um, like a hand puppet, say, and you cover this character's eyes, children will also say that they cannot see this this character. So um, if it works with these uh, cultural artifacts like dolls and puppets, then I'm sure um, they will treat their actually human uh, peers in, in, in the same way. But um, that doesn't mean that you do not see other differences uh, in the way they, they interact with, with peers and adults. But I'm not an expert on this on this question, so I cannot speak so much to that. No, no that, that's not, no problem at all. I, I just, I'm speculating here as well around the, um, yeah. the interesting relationship that um, we have with um, our domestic pets as well. So I'm particularly thinking about dogs and, and the fact that dogs have kind of co-evolved with humans for quite a long period of time now. Um, right. And, um, you know, there is some evidence of uh, that their understanding of directionality of gaze uh, and things like this. Um, it would be interesting to see uh, at what um, the relationship of, of, of gaze and mutuality between children who are around about three or four years old with their domestic pets and specifically dogs who tend to be more responsive to things like commands and, and gaze. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. We have a kind of a, a humanoid, if you will, relation sometimes to to those animals, and uh, we anthropomorphize these um, domestic animals a lot more than we would uh, uh, treat a lot more than than other animals. Um, so I think uh, you're probably right, and children would would also demand that kind of mutuality uh, from from these animals that's very possible uh, it could also be a pretend sort of situation though that they think that they're in uh, because otherwise we can't really explain why they behave in the same way um, when you present them with um, 
George the monkey, like a stuffed um, animal or a, a doll uh, or Snoopy or, or whatever, uh, where gays cannot be reciprocated, not just because um, they're not human, but they're not even animate beings. They're just uh, cultural artifacts that are uh, that are created or made to be uh, anthropomorphized by by people. So if it works even with these artifacts, um, again, I would not be surprised if it would work with with animals um, with whom we engage a lot. Yeah, I, I think yeah. it has um, fascinating implications. I mean, um, this this underpinning need for mutuality um, that seems to be to be, as you say, um, present very early on. I think it has interesting implications for thinking about the technology as well that we build around us, particularly if we're thinking about you know. Um, um, devices, robots that are going to be perhaps caring for us in the future. Um, that need yes. for mutuality, particularly around gays, but in other modes as well. Um, I think this has interesting implications um, because you're saying this is actually fundamental to what it is to be human from a very early age. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that even as adults, we still have in us a residue of this kind of very interesting, intuitive grasp of the intersubjective nature of human beings. Uh, we also complain to somebody who talks to us with um, reflective sunglasses on his face and say, hey, take those off. You know, I cannot see you. Where, of course, I mean, we can see the other, but in some sense, you can't. And we we have uh, still there's a leftover of this understanding that we as adults uh, maintain. Thanks for listening again to Who Cares? What's the point? Um, you can follow us on Twitter at WCWTP or myself, your host Saab Johal at Saab, S-A-R-B, on Twitter too. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash WCWTP, or come find us at whocareswhatsthepoint.com. Please, if you get the time, leave us a review on iTunes and do, do rate us there. It does help other people find us. And don't forget, there's a huge back catalogue of at least 21 episodes now for you to listen to. Um, I know that there's quite a few new subscribers, so please check into our dip, uh, back catalogue and have a listen. Until next week, uh, I hope you've enjoyed the show and don't forget. Who cares? What's the point?